Here we go. Uh, so we are uh, uh, in Romans 16. Uh, the last time we were together, which was three weeks ago, the last time we were all together, which was three weeks ago, uh, we looked at verses uh, 17 through uh, basically through verse 19 and 20. Uh, and uh, today I'd like to pick it up with verse 21. Uh, down through the end of the chapter. Look at those uh, greetings, those few greetings there uh, that uh, we have though in, in those first few verses and then at, at the uh, doxology beginning in verse 25. Um, verse uh, 20 is the verse we, we didn't uh, really spend any time on. That was not by neglect, uh, but rather by strategy. It's uh, certainly a good... Uh, there's nothing wrong with what verse 20 expresses, but it's generally the agreement of most commentators and scholars that that verse has been, uh, uh, excuse me, the phrase there at the end, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, that that actually has been uh, added after the book was written, uh, probably was uh, mistakenly placed in there by uh, a scribe at some point, and so uh, probably was not in the original text. Um, but we did look at verses 17 through 20, and uh, uh, three weeks ago. So look at those verses and see what can we remember that we talked about three weeks ago. I know I'm, I know I'm pushing you folks to the limit here to ask you to remember something from three weeks ago, but. You see anything in there? You recall the things we talked about? Kind of going back to the idea of the flattering speech. Okay. Okay. So he's he's warning them about uh, about false teachers. And uh, he kind of inserts this at this point right in the middle of his greetings. He's given a, he's given a number of greetings, his own personal greetings that we were looking at uh, beginning in verse 3 and down through verse 16 where he's greeted a number of people that he either knows in Rome or people whom he knows, uh, who he knows of in Rome. And he's been greeting those. And then beginning in verse 17, he urges them to keep an eye out for these uh, troublemakers, for false teachers, etc. And uh, we talked about how uh, uh, that while that seems like to kind of be a break in his theme, uh, it makes sense that Paul would be concerned about this, having just thought about all these people who are so meaningful to him and, uh, and, and whom he loves, to then be concerned about their spiritual well-being. So while it seems like a break in his uh, in the theme that he's developing at this point, it certainly makes sense that Paul would have this concern. Anything else from those verses? Well, we've talked about that at this point, he says that they are very faithful and that there's not an obvious foreseen problem. Mm-hmm. He's just warning them, okay, I know this is coming at some point, be there. Yeah, okay. Uh, in fact, he's quite, he, he seems quite pleased with the Romans and with the reputation that they have. And that is one of his concerns, that when you have somebody who has uh, 
an outstanding reputation and, and uh, is widely known, then if something happens uh, where that person stumbles or falls, it does more damage than it would if somebody who didn't have a reputation were to stumble and fall. So part of his concern is that the Romans have this great reputation. The church is known throughout uh, the whole Roman world, uh, presumably at least by other Christians and probably also by many pagans. And so he's concerned that this church, which has such a great reputation, might possibly stumble and fall and then bring some dishonor to the Lord. We also talk about three distinguishing characteristics or three kind of red flags that we can watch for that that alert us to when somebody is a false teacher. Do you remember what those three things are? They're not necessarily all contained in this passage, but we talked about them. Three, three kind of marks uh, that are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes present. Well, some of them always are, but uh, but always or oftentimes are present with a false teacher. Remember what they were? Okay. The content of their message. For one, if, they're, if, they're, if the things they're teaching do not line up with the apostolic doctrine, with the things that, that, that you've learned and been trained and know of, and, 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 and you start hearing something that just doesn't quite jive with that, that's a red flag. You've got a false teacher. So content is one. What else? Fruit, okay? Uh, what, what is the effect of this person's life? What is the effect of this person's uh, teaching? Does it, does it produce uh, righteousness? Does it produce goodness? Does it produce faithfulness to God? Does it honor God? Does it honor Christ? Etc., etc. If, if, the, if the result of this person and the influence that they have in the church uh, produces things that are unwholesome or unchristlike or ungodly, then that's an indication of uh, that they are, in fact, a false teacher. And then the third thing would be what? The way they go about it. Their manner, okay? Uh, James says, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by peacemakers. And so if you have somebody uh, who's... Uh, Whose, whose manner is just very unchristlike uh, in the way that they communicate and the way they operate, uh, then even before you have an opportunity to see the fruit of their teaching and the fruit of their ministry, so to speak, even before you see that, you know there's, some, there's a problem here uh, by, the, by the manner of the way they teach. So these are some of the things then that Paul has been alerting us to in these verses. Then in verse 21, picking it up in verse 21, Paul goes back now to the idea or to this issue of, of greeting the people in Rome. But here, instead of giving his own personal greetings, he is relating the greetings of others. Okay? So, uh, so oftentimes when you think of somebody in another part of the country or whatever, uh, and uh, uh, or if maybe you're on the phone and you're talking to somebody you know and, and, and you tell them, well, say hello to your wife or say hello to your husband. You know, that, that's a personal greeting that you give. But, uh, but you know, sometimes uh, my wife will be on the phone and she'll be talking to one of our children, uh, hither and yon, wherever they are. 
And, and I will say to her while she's on the phone, I'll interrupt her and say, say hi to Petrina or say hi to Simeon, my grandson or whatever. You know, I, I, I ask her to relay a greeting for me. OK, so that's what Paul is doing here in verse 21. He has now moved beyond giving his own personal greetings and he is passing on greetings from others. So these are presumably people who are with Paul in Corinth at this time. And they are cognizant of the fact that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And, uh, uh, and, and they want to pass on their greetings. So they share some of Paul's concern and Paul's love for the church in Rome. Whether or not they, they've ever been there, there's no indication that any of these people that he mentions uh, have ever been there. I think there's eight of them all total here. There's no indication that any of them have ever been to Rome. But they know of the believers in Rome. They know of the church in Rome. They know their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they share Paul's concern and Paul's love. And so they want to share their greetings as well. So he says in verse 21, Timothy, uh, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's, uh, that's actually the verse that I was referring to earlier that is uh, 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 questionable as to its original uh, inclusion in the, in the letter. Then he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. So, uh, so he begins to relate these greetings and he starts out with Timothy. And of course, uh, of course, we're familiar with Timothy. He calls him here his fellow worker. And certainly Timothy is Paul's fellow worker. Timothy, you'll remember from reading through the book of Acts, you'll remember that uh, Timothy was a convert from the uh, city of Derby, which is a city which Paul visited on his first missionary journey. And at the beginning of his second missionary journey, as Paul was setting out, he came to, uh, uh, he set out first to strengthen the churches he'd visited on his first missionary journey. Uh, and, uh, and so he returned to Derby. And in Acts chapter 16, it says he came to Derby and it says there was a, a disciple there by the name of Timothy. And he took Timothy with him. He wanted uh, Timothy to travel with him and to work with him. And so he took Timothy uh, with him. Uh, uh, but, but Paul does not simply consider Timothy to be a co-worker or a fellow worker. He refers to him as his beloved son and as his true child in the faith in, in, uh, in his epistles, his letters to Timothy. Uh, later, he refers to him in this way. He also, even after the book of Romans is written, refers to his youth. And in, in, uh, in 1 Timothy, when he's talking to Timothy about, when he's writing to Timothy about how to, how to function within the church there in Ephesus where Timothy has been left, uh, 
he tells him not to let people look down on his youthfulness. And uh, so even at this point, later than the book of Romans, Timothy is comparatively speaking, uh, for apparently at least for someone who's in a position of church leadership, a relatively young individual. So he was quite young, apparently, in Acts 16 when Paul picked him up and began to take him with him. But he's a man who who Paul had apparently personally led to Christ. We gather that from him calling him his true child in the faith or his beloved son. Uh, so the question is, when did when did Timothy get saved? We we know that Timothy's uh, mother and grandmother were women of faith. We learn that from uh, one of the letters to Timothy, where Paul talks about uh, uh, talks about. Uh, his grandmother and his mother, and and how they were women of faith. And so if you kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together, it appears that Paul, when he came to Derby in Acts chapter 14, and they preached there in, in Derby and were there for some time, it says they saw a number of converts. And of course, they always started in the synagogue. We know that Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jews. And uh, so it's likely that Timothy's mother and grandmother and Timothy himself were apparently led to Christ during that first missionary journey uh, when Paul came to Derby, uh, and that by the time he has come back to Derby, uh, the second time apparently Timothy has developed quite a reputation. It said he was well known, he was well spoken of in that whole region around Derby, the other cities around Derby. So apparently. After Timothy got converted at this very early age, and even though he was still a young man, apparently he became quite fervent and quite zealous in, 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 uh, uh, in the things of the Lord. And so he develops this reputation not only in Derby, but in the other cities as well. So he really is a pretty remarkable man. And Paul has a, a, a particularly close bond to him because he was apparently involved in Tim immediately involved in Timothy's conversion. And so there's this very precious relationship between Paul and Timothy, and that comes out very clearly then when you read the two epistles to Timothy. But but beyond that, Timothy does become a very significant co worker with Paul. So he travels extensively with Paul. Eventually Paul leaves him in Ephesus uh, to supervise the, the, the operation, the functioning of that church in Ephesus, even though he's still relatively speaking young. And the church in Ephesus by this point is a quite a large influential church. Timothy has been left there uh, uh, by later in the New Testament records. Uh, Timothy has been left there to shepherd that, that group. We also know that Timothy, Paul considers Timothy to be a co-author of six of his epistles. So, uh, so Timothy is listed with Paul. Paul's, Paul, when he introduces the letter, says, I'm right, and, and Timothy, and includes Timothy with him as a co-author. Now, I don't know to what degree Timothy actually contributed to the, excuse me, the theology, etc., of the letters, but apparently Paul wanted people to know that Timothy was in on this deal, too, in First and Second Thessalonians and uh, Philippians and Colossians and Philemon and uh, Second Corinthians, I think. Second, uh, so about six epistles that 
Timothy's been involved. So he really is a co-worker and is apparently even now with Paul in Corinth as he's writing Rome. And Paul, Timothy, having this same heart that Paul has, wants to send his greetings to the church in Rome. And then Paul lists uh, three guys together. Uh, He lists Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and uh, some of these names are fairly common names. So, uh, uh, for example, the name Lucius appears uh, in other places in the New Testament, but there's not necessarily any reason to assume they are the same individual because they are. it is a fairly common name. So we really know very little about these guys except that they are Paul's kinsmen. There is some suggestion that, uh, that one or more of these three guys are in the in the representative committee, if you will, that's traveling with Paul to take the offering from Achaia and Macedonia uh, back to Jerusalem. So they've collected this offering for the, for the needy church in Jerusalem and, uh, and they need to make sure that this is done with integrity and that people see that it's done with integrity. And so representatives from various churches uh, traveled with Paul and it's when, he, when he took the money back to Jerusalem, and it's possible that some or maybe all of these guys were part of that team that's taking the offering uh, back to Jerusalem. And then in, uh, in verse 22, uh, he said, uh, the, the writer here says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So here is just an insertion, not from Paul but from the, uh, the, what they call the amanuensis. Okay? The amanuensis is the, person, is the person who transcribes or writes at the dictation of another. Okay? So we discover, and I've alluded to this several times as we've gone through Romans, we discover that Paul is not actually writing these things out himself, but he is dictating them. He is... He is, uh, you can, you know, I like to picture him because this is the way I operate. I like to picture him kind of pacing the floor, you know, and thinking about, you know, all these things he wants to say and then saying, oh, no, no, don't say it that way. Say it this way or whatever, you know. And as he's doing that, then Tertius is writing it down. I have to have a great deal of respect for Tertius because that's a job I would never, ever want to, to be somebody else's secretary writing down uh, what they wrote. I don't know if they used shorthand back in those days. I don't know if they had shorthand for Greek. But, but at any rate, it was a, it, obviously, you've studied Romans now for two years. It's obviously a daunting task. So I have a lot of respect for this guy, Tertius. And he's not just simply somebody that Paul has hired off the street to be his amanuensis or his secretary, but it is, in fact, a believer because he says, I greet you in the Lord. So he just takes the opportunity. He's put all this effort into this letter to the Romans. He probably by this time has as much heart for Rome as Paul does. And so he wants to insert his own personal greeting. And and apparently Paul uh, was open to that idea. So he inserts his own greeting here. And then we have uh, three more people mentioned. Gaius. and uh, he says, who was a host to me and to the whole church who greets you. Now, of course, this is Gaius from Corinth. And, uh, and we learn in Paul's letters to the Corinthians that Paul, had, in, in, at least in Corinth, had only baptized two people. He makes a point of that because people were trying to say, I'm of Paul and I'm of Paulus, etc. 
And and Paul says, well, you know, I'm glad I only baptized a couple people, so you know, I can't have all these people who I baptized running around saying they're Paul. Uh, and he mentions the two people who he baptized, and Gaius was one of them. So this is probably an individual who was personally baptized by Paul, and he's also known for his hospitality, because it says here that he was a host to Paul. Apparently, Paul is at the time the letter is written living in Gaius's home. And, but he says he's also a host to the whole church. Now, uh, it's unlikely that what he means there is that, the, is that it was a uh, house church uh, that met in Gaius's home because by this time the church in Corinth was much larger, we believe, than could be contained in one house church. So when he says he was a host to the whole church, probably what it means is this guy had such a reputation for hospitality that any time any Christians were coming through Rome or traveling through Rome or even any, or excuse me, Corinth, or there were any Christians in Corinth who needed housing or whatever for a, uh, for a period of time, this guy was the guy to go to. He was the go-to guy if you needed somebody who was hospitable because he had a reputation for being hospitable or being a host to the whole church, okay? Uh, that seems to be what Paul has in mind here. Then he mentions a guy by the name of Rastus, and again, we have a couple different times that this name is used in the New Testament. There is a man by the name of Rastus who traveled with Paul and who Paul used in the same way that he used others like Timothy and Titus to send to various places to do his business. Uh, this appears not to be that individual. Uh, and the reason we say that is because this particular individual is what? What do we know about this Erastus? He's the city treasurer, right. And through archaeology, uh, uh, we understand that there was a fellow by the name of Erastus from this period of time who uh, later held an even higher position within the city government at Corinth right in this particular time frame. And so it's probable that that this Erastus that he's speaking of is the same Erastus whose name they have discovered on this monument in ancient Corinth. Uh, so he's a city official, later is promoted to an even higher position within the city. Uh, it's and and we and I and I think he's different than the other Erastus that's mentioned because it's unlikely that a person who's a responsible civil servant like Erastus is in a position of city treasurer, is likely to be tracing all over the country on behalf of Paul, uh, traveling with Paul and carrying out Paul's instructions and going from city to city, etc., etc. So he's probably a different guy, but it is significant here that people in high positions are also coming to Christ at this point. And then finally, he mentions somebody by the name of Cortus, who he simply says is the brother. And, uh, and because of the brevity with which he refers to Quartus, it seems that it's apparent that the Roman believers know of this guy. Otherwise, it seems like Paul would have been more specific about who he is. But he just simply calls him the brother, and that's all we know about him. But really, if someone is a brother in Christ, you really don't need to know a lot more because that really is the most important thing. Isn't it? So, anyway, there's Quartus. And then again, there's verse 24, which uh, 
which, as I say, most scholars believe uh, probably is, is uh, added in here from another place by accident uh, by some scribe at some point in the, in the transcribing of the New Testament documents. Uh, but then we move on to what is called the doxology, and this is what I want to spend most of our time on today. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. Now, this doxology, as, uh, as we've talked about with other uh, portions of this final couple chapters or so of Romans, comes with its own uh, kind of inherent difficulties. Uh, the, the end of Romans, the last particularly chapters uh, 15 and 16, uh, all kinds of weird things happen with these chapters in the, in the available manuscripts that we have of, of the uh, ancient documents. Uh, and, and the doxology itself is, is particular, this doxology is particularly problematic because in various manuscripts it appears at different places in the text, okay? Uh, so sometimes it appears after chapter 14, at the end of chapter 14, etc., etc., etc. So one commentator I was reading called it the migrating doxology because depending on which manuscript you're looking at, which ancient Greek manuscript you're looking at, you find it in different places. Uh, there are also some, uh, uh, in, in textual criticism, what they call textual criticism, the study of the text, uh, one of the things they do is they look at the kinds of words that very various authors are are prone to use, and and if you see certain types of phrases or words uh, that are used a lot by an author, then if you have a document and you don't know who wrote the document, if those if those same kinds of phrases and words pop up a lot, then you then it it leads you to be inclined to think, well, this particular guy wrote it because that's the way he talks. You know, we all have our own special way of talking. And when we were at uh, camp last week, uh, we had a fellow. Uh, so the main speaker at camp was uh, from northern Ontario. But he speaks with a Mississippi accent. <laughs> so it's really fun listening to him because he tells you these stories about ice fishing in Ontario with an accent, a deep southern accent. The reason is he grew up in Mississippi and he married a woman from Ontario. And so he's lived in Ontario for, I don't know, 25 years or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but he just, you know, he has just that kind of down south way of talking, you know, and he tells stories like you can imagine somebody from Mississippi would tell. And so you have to keep have telling yourself this guy is from Ontario. Uh, but uh, people have unique ways of talking. And so uh, one of the things about this doxology is there's a couple words in here, that, a couple ways that, that the author expresses himself, and they go, well, Paul hasn't really used those kind of terms, at least not in Romans, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit. 
possibly in some other epistles. So there's some question, actually there's quite a bit of question among scholars as to whether or not Paul actually wrote this doxology. Uh, but uh, on the flip side of it, as you read the doxology, one of the things that's striking is how the things that are said in this doxology coincide or parallel so much things that were said in chapter 1 of Romans. So, uh, for example, Paul talks about the revelation of the mystery. Do you remember how in Romans chapter 1 he talks about how the gospel was revealed and he, uh, and he talks about uh, them being established. And in Romans chapter 1, he talks about his concern for the Romans being established. So in some ways, this doxology really kind of seems like a bookend on the other end of the book from chapter 1 where, where uh, Paul is going back and he's thinking back about the things he set out to talk about, the things he originally wanted to talk about, and, uh, and, and, and now he's kind of wrapping it up and saying, okay, we talked about all that stuff and here we are at the end and these are still my concerns. Uh, so, uh, so it has these parallels with chapter 1. As we're going to see in a minute, uh, whoever wrote this doxology, it starts out to talk about one thing and immediately gets distracted and goes wandering off to talk about something else and only then at verse 27 does he come back to conclude what he started to say in verse 25. Now, if that's not Pauline, I don't know what is, okay? Uh, we've seen that all the way through Romans, haven't we? That Paul starts out to say something and then he gets distracted and sometimes not till many, many verses later does he get back to what he started to say. Sometimes it seems like he never gets back to what he started to say. So that seems very... Pauline. But the essence of it, the real crux of the issue to me seems to be that whether or not Paul actually wrote these verses or whether they were somehow added by somebody else at a later date, they are completely apostolic in the sense that they coincide perfectly with everything we know about the apostolic faith. So, so I really have no problem with these verses at all. There's nothing about them. There's nothing in these verses. Even if, even if I were to believe that Paul had not himself penned them, there's certainly nothing in here that Paul would object to. These things are all things that are well established from other places in Scripture and in fact from other places in Paul's epistle here. So I do believe, I do tend to believe that Paul was the original author of the uh, doxology. I can't account for why it migrates all over the place in various manuscripts. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, the objections to its authorship by Paul are, I think, significant, but I don't think they carry sufficient weight to discredit it in that regard. But even in my mind, even if it weren't Pauline, it's certainly some truths that it would behoove us to spend time thinking about because they are, in fact, accurately, do in fact accurately represent the apostolic faith. So he starts out in verse 25 and he says, Now to him uh, who is able to establish you, and, and actually what's interesting is, uh, what is there about 
about uh, what eight words there are really in the Greek are condensed down to about two or three words. Uh, but what's striking is he starts out to say to him or to God or to the one who is able. And then he doesn't tell you what he doesn't tell you. He starts to say something, something. He starts to attribute something to God or he starts to say something uh, about to God. But but then he wanders all over the place and he starts talking about other things. Okay, and he doesn't get back to it. But just to kind of so you'll see where he's going ultimately with his argument. He doesn't get back to it till verse 27 when he picks it up again in the dating case. And he says to the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. So this is what he wants to say. This is what he sets out. This is what he's setting out to say: is that to God be the glory forever. Okay. Everything else in between is kind of parenthetical. Okay. But what he sets out, this, uh, uh, what he gets distracted with immediately is this God to whom he wants to give glory. So the question is, to whom? Who is this whom? What is this whom like? To whom he wants to give glory. And what's the first thing he says about him? Well, back in verse 25. To him who, what? Is able to establish you. Okay. And this is an issue that Paul is very concerned about. As, as I mentioned, it comes up back in, in uh, chapter 1 that he is concerned that he wants to come to Rome in order that he can see that the Roman church is a church he hasn't even founded. He, didn't, he wasn't there for their founding. He's never been there before. But he is concerned he wants to come there and he wants to establish them. Or the word could be translated. In fact, some places in your New Testament is translated strengthen them. And this thing about God is that is that Paul has this confidence that God is the one who is able. The word there means sufficiently powerful to establish you, meaning to establish the Romans. This is incidentally one reason why I, I think that the, the doxology is Pauline and belongs here because just a few verses before this, he's been talking to them about false teachers, right? And he's been talking about, their, about his concern that even though they're doing well now, that they could be hindered or stumbled or scandalized by false teachers. But then he reaches his conclusion there in that previous section that God will soon crush Satan under their feet. And so this idea, it's interrupted, of course, by these greetings that he relates on behalf of others. But this idea of them being established, of, of being, uh, being secured in the faith, being secured in the doctrine, goes right along with the things he'd just been saying a few verses before. So it just seems to fit, uh, to me, it seems to fit in the context of... Uh, of the way Paul's thinking in this chapter. So he's concerned about them being established, but he has a confidence that God is able to do that. 
And as I said, this issue of believers being established is a big issue in, in Paul's writings. He's, he's very concerned about this. And it comes up from time to time about uh, as he writes to various churches and writes to various believers about them being strengthened in the faith, being established in the faith. And if we love the Lord, if, we're, if we've really been born again and, and the Spirit has come to dwell in us, it's something we're concerned about too, right? We're concerned about it for ourselves because oftentimes we face circumstances, we face situations, and they seem so overwhelming. Uh, I don't know about you, but at times you kind of wonder, am I going to survive this? Is my faith going to survive this? Am I going to come through this as a strong, confident believer? And Paul says that God is able to do that. And certainly I've seen it in my own life. As I look back in my own life and see situations I've gone through and circumstances I've gone through, some of them have been quite daunting and I'm sure you have a list of things like that in your own experience as well. And as I look back on those things, in fact, I know people who were watching me as I went through those things and wondering whether I was going to make it spiritually. Okay. Uh, and, and the confidence that we have is that God is the one who is able to establish us. And I stand here today not because I was so great at holding on, not because I was so great at being firm in the faith, but I stand here today and you're here today because God is able, as He says in another place, to make you stand. God is able to establish you, to strengthen you in the faith. Now, this is reassuring for me personally in my own life, but it can be reassuring for us too uh, as we look at other lives, can it? Because we all have people whom we love, whom we care about. And, And we care about their walk with the Lord. John the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. Of course, he's talking about his spiritual children, people whom he was responsible for spiritually. And his greatest joy was when he looked at them and he saw they were continuing to walk in the Lord. And the way that happens is by the power of God. God is sufficiently powerful to establish us. And so we all have people like that in our lives. And maybe it's somebody who you had an opportunity to disciple or train or influence in the faith. And so maybe it's somebody you led to Christ. Somebody that you were able to witness to and they came to Christ. And in the beginning, it looks pretty rough when a, when a person first gets converted. Boy, you know, it's kind of panic city for the person who led them to Christ. You know, how, you know how's this person going to navigate these first few weeks or months or years as they begin to encounter opposition and criticism and all the net, all the kind of doubts and things that naturally come with being a new believer. How are they going to navigate and survive all this? Well, God is able to make them stand, he says. God is able to, 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 uh, uh, to establish them and to strengthen them. We, we think about our own children. We're concerned about our own children and we watch them go through experiences and go through uh, situations and exposed to, exposed to various 
input or various things in life and we worry about them and we worry about their spiritual vitality and, and, and whether or not they're going to remain faithful to the Lord. And this verse is a, is a confidence builder in that because we realize that God is the one who is able to make them stand. God is the one who is able to establish them. God is the one who is able to strengthen them. And then he wanders even further off track. <laughs> so he starts to talk about wanting to give glory to God and he gets off on this thing about establishing them and then the question comes up, well, how does God establish them? How does God strengthen us? How does God establish you? How does God strengthen you in your spiritual walk? Because we get bombarded from all different angles and we get all kinds of circumstances that try our faith and we have questions that come in our mind. And, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed as long as I have been a Christian and as much as I have studied the Scriptures and as much as I've had the opportunity to teach the Bible, as old as I am, the really wild doubts and questions that sometimes pop in my mind, you know. And I go, where did that come from, you know? And, and you have these questions that come to your mind. And, you, you know, and, and so the question is, how do I then, or, or what is the means by which, or how, how am I strengthened? How, how does God strengthen me? And this is where Paul, Paul now, in his, uh, or, or whoever it is, wanders off now even further from his original comment that he was going to make and he starts to talk about the gospel. He says, Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. So, so the way, ultimately the way a believer is strengthened Ultimately, the way a believer is established is, as he says, according to what he calls my gospel. Now, when he says my gospel, he doesn't mean it's something he came up with. This isn't something, you know, Paul just went out and sat on a rock out in the desert somewhere and thought, you know, you know I'm going to make up a religion like some people have been known to do. That, that's not what he means when he says my gospel. What he means is it's, a God, it's, it's God's gospel. It was God's idea. And that's, he's going to make that point here in just a minute. This was God's idea from eternity past. But He has entrusted it to me. He has, give, I, he has now given it to me as, as my stewardship to make sure that it gets out. To make sure that people hear about it. So in one sense, what Paul is saying is God has given it to me and I have embraced it. And in that sense... It's mine. It's my gospel. But he clarifies it by making clear that what the gospel is, is the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, when he says that we are strengthened according to this gospel, that word there, uh, uh, according to, could have uh, uh, one of two possible means, and I think actually it, it carries both senses to it uh, in, this, uh, in this context. It apparently carries both senses. And the one sense is that God has strengthened us according to the gospel. The gospel is the measure. The gospel is the standard 
by which that strengthening is measured. In other words, if I want to know whether or not a person has been strengthened, I look at their life and I line it up with the gospel. And the gospel is the gospel is the measure by which I determine because the gospel is what we're to be strengthened in. Ultimately, it is the gospel that we are to be strengthened. We'll talk a little bit in a minute about what that gospel is. But it's the gospel that we are to be strengthened in. It is the measure according to the gospel. The other sense in which that according could be seen, and I think also can be seen, is that it is the it is the means or it is the way by which we are strengthened. So it's both the means and I mean it's both the measure and the means. It is the standard by which I by which I'm being strengthened to, and it is also the thing which strengthens me. So God is at work in my life using the gospel to strengthen me. That's why when Jesus was up there in the upper room before the crucifixion and they broke bread and they, t- and they took what we call communion, okay, the Last Supper, what did He tell them? He says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of Me. Why did He say that? Why did He tell them that this is something that you need to henceforth consistently, regularly do? Is you need to do this, take this little simple meal of the bread and the, and, and the wine, take these two little simple things and eat them and drink them in remembrance of Me. Because Christ knew that ultimately, Jesus knew that ultimately, we were only going to be established in the faith if we make a regular habit of going back and remembering the gospel. If it is a, if it is a regular habit of our life to view our life in the context of who Christ is and what He did for us. So, so God is strengthening us according to the Gospel, He says. And then He elaborates what that Gospel is. Well, it's the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, when He says the preaching of Jesus Christ, and I don't want to take time to explain how this all is determined, but most, I think every commentator I read agrees on this. When he's talking about the preaching of Jesus Christ, he's not talking about the things that Jesus taught per se. That's not what he's referring to. But rather, he's referring to the teaching about Christ. The teaching about Christ. That that, 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 is, that, that that is the gospel by which we are strengthened is the teaching about Christ. And that, that doesn't mean we, that, the, that Christ's teachings are irrelevant. Because that's all incorporated there. But... But there's much more to be said about Jesus than what He said in the Gospels. That's why we have the Epistles. That's why we have the book of Romans. Because there's a great deal more to be said about Christ than than only what He taught. And it's it's that whole orb of things. Not only what Jesus taught, but about Him Himself. 
who he was and what he did and what he accomplished. This is what Paul is preaching. He's preaching about Jesus. And then he tells us three things about this gospel. He says, uh, he refers to it as the, the gospel being the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. So the first thing we learn is that this gospel, as we now understand it, has really been a secret for many ages, actually, from eternity past. But now it is manifested. So it's, it was a secret, but now it's been revealed. Now it's been manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, have been made known. So there are three things made known, he says, to all the nations. So three things about the gospel. It was once hidden. It was once a secret in the long ages past, in the eternity past. This is, it was in the mind of God, but it was really unknown to us. And it was pretty much unknown to us, although there were little tidbits of hints and, and suggestions and things down through the Old Testament and through Jewish history. God made some things known. But even Peter tells us that during that period in which it was hidden, said that the prophets, even the prophets themselves, as they were prophesying these things about the Christ, were trying to study their own prophecies and figure out to get the whole picture. But they couldn't get the whole picture because the one really explanatory key that was key to understanding it all had not yet arrived. And that key was Christ Himself. So it was hidden. But when Christ came, it was revealed. This is why... In the Gospel of Luke, that story of Christ's walk on the Emmaus Road with the disciples is so pivotal. Because up to that point, they didn't understand. But after the resurrection, Jesus goes on that walk with those two disciples, whoever they were, we don't know for sure, with those two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And what did he do? He explained all the things about himself from the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been on that walk? Man, what a Bible study. <laughs> As he takes them and he goes all the way through the law and the prophets and he tells them. And so now the gospel has been revealed. And what we understand from the gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is what we didn't know. This is what we didn't understand. We understood that God was a merciful God. We understood somehow through the offerings and the, all those bulls and goats and pigeons and all that stuff that were offered, thousands and thousands of them over, over many, 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 many centuries. You know, there was a picture somehow that there was going to, there was a blood set there. You know, God, God will forgive our sin. I don't know how this works. But then Christ came reconciling the world unto Himself. And it was manifested to us. But not only was it manifested to us, but He says, by the Scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of God. So, now we go back and we look at what the prophets said. And not only did we realize they were telling us about Christ, but we realized they were also telling us that this message 
had to be published all over the world. This was not a message exclusively for Israel. And this is revealed to us, he says, in the scriptures of the prophets, in the writings of the prophets. Now it has been revealed and now it has been published in all the world leading to the obedience of faith. And so what we have is we have God working his plan of redemption and it's in his mind, but we don't really see it. And it's way, way back here. It's been in his mind from eternity past and then, and then he creates the world and, and then man sins and then he gives a promise there, even there at the very beginning. He's going to crush that. And, and, and then it goes on and pretty soon this guy Abraham comes along and goes, okay, now Abraham, I'm going to take you and through you I'm going to bless all the nations that will be here. No clue how that's going to happen. Abraham has no idea how through him and through his descendants all the nations will be blessed. But he takes then the descendants of Abraham and he just kind of makes them his little kind of his kind of pet project, so to speak. And through this one little tribe of people, he's trying to show the rest of the world what he's like. Okay, so he makes them really weird. He tells them, you know, you can't eat pork and you got to circumcise your man and, you know, and you got to, you know, and he does, and he does all these things that make them really stand out as different. And every one of those things in some way is a picture to the world of God. But it's all contained here in this little group of people in one little part of the world. And not very many people outside of it here. Now, some do. It does get out. There's the story of Jonah going to Nineveh and things like that. So a little bit of the story gets out, but pretty much it's contained right here. And then, as he says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, Christ came. At just the right time, boom, Christ comes. It all becomes clear. It's all revealed. And then it becomes clear that it isn't just about this tribe of people, but it's about everybody all over the world. And you guys better get busy because you've got a job to do. And the remarkable thing about those New Testament Christians is they did just that. They got busy publishing this message all over the world. And the world was literally changed. We, it's, it's almost impossible because we live in a Christianized world. We don't live in a Christian world, but we live in a Christianized world. We live in a world where our whole, our whole perspective, our whole culture is shaped in ways that we, that we, unless you studied the history and studied the development of philosophy and things, we have no idea of how profoundly differently we view things. Just to give you a, just a real quick example. In the pagan world, Time was viewed as circular. So, so everything just kind of went in circle and started, you know, kept starting over and over and over and over and over again. Okay. So time was a circle. But when the gospel was preached in all the world, this, this message that was once contained within this little group of people in this one remote place in the world down there in Palestine, a concept about time was introduced to the world that was absolutely foreign to the pagan world. And it comes in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And suddenly, time is no more circular. It's no longer circular. It's linear. It has a beginning and it has, an, it has a goal. It has an end. Okay. And that totally changed the way 
all the world, even the pagan world, views time. And it opened up all the possibility of the modern world. When you pull your cell phone out of your pocket today and talk on your cell phone, just remember that that was made possible because the world began to see time as a linear thing rather than circular. I can't take that time to explain how that's true to you, but, but almost everything in our society and in our culture is influenced by the way the gospel influenced the world as it went out. And, and we could go on and on. And so it resulted in the obedience of faith. And so Paul then concludes, this great God, he is so fantastic, to the only wise God, he says, this God who is so wise, who saw this and had all of this planned from the beginning because he loves his creation, because he loves man, because he wants to redeem for himself a whole host of billions of people who, with whom he can fellowship forever and who will fellowship with him forever. He is so wise, he scoped all this out. So to him, he says, Paul's desire is be glory forever. So forever and ever he's going to be glorified. But notice the clause he inserts there. Through Jesus Christ. So there's not going to be any time in heaven when we forget this about Jesus. There's never going to be any time in heaven when we forget that we're there because of Christ. There's never going to be any time in all of eternity, in all the long eons to come, there's never going to be a time when we stop saying to God, thank you for Jesus. And that is what the book of Romans is about. Okay? All right, that's it.